0: Hello and welcome to the 11th episode of English 264 Online. This episode will look at John Stuart Mill and also consider a a host of writers as part of the Victorian Ladies and Gentlemen supplemental section of our anthology. John Stuart Mill was perhaps the most influential intellectual in Victorian England. Uh, He is an example of the utilitarian movement, but certainly the most liberal and open-minded variant of that movement, uh, not perhaps typical of that of utilitarianism in general. He was raised a utilitarian. His father, James Mill, was one of the founders of the movement, along with Jeremy Bentham, who was John Stuart Mill's godfather. He was the eldest of nine children in his family. His father, James Mill, a philosopher, a, a philosophical radical, that is, a utilitarian, and uh, John Stuart Mill received no formal education. His father didn't think the education system brought students to their full potential, and instead he made John his project, homeschooled him, and uh, the result of that, John Stuart Mill was speaking ancient Greek at the age of three. He had a sophisticated knowledge of Latin and mathematics by age eight, of logic by 12, and economics by age 13. And eventually at 17, he began his career in the East India Company, uh, in a profession um, acquired for him by his father with a 25-year lead on p- on other young men his age this rigorous utilitarian education however carried a cost uh, that is he had a nervous breakdown at the age of 20 as he writes about in his autobiography and was only able to heal himself by reading poetry which he had uh, not had much contact with before that point uh, reading wordsworth in particular uh, interestingly wordsworth william wordsworth had a nervous breakdown Uh, which he healed by reading mathematics and doing mathematical problems. You can perhaps imagine John Stuart Mill and William Wordsworth as two opposites who reached some balance in their lives and in their intellectual life by uh, finding a middle ground in between the two. John Stuart Mill was a noted thinker and philosopher. Uh, In 1843, he published Systems of Logic, and in 1847, Principles of Political Economy, uh, Economic Theory, both of which became the standard works on their subjects in England. In 1859, he branched out to issues of freedom of speech and freedom of behavior in On Liberty, which we read excerpts from, and which is certainly now his most famous work. Interestingly, his championing of individual liberties, individual freedoms, is not based on any idea of natural rights, uh, that you were born with the right to freedom of speech as an individual, that you were born with the right to express yourself he bases his defense of these ideals much more in utilitarian principles. The great goal of utilitarianism, as posited by Bentham and James Mill, was to achieve the greatest happiness for the greatest number. Uh, And sometimes it's referred to derisively as the, uh, the happiness principle by Carlyle and others who opposed it. Jeremy Bentham had invented what he called the philosophic calculus, so that for any decision, any policy issue, you would uh, assign a quantitative number in two columns. In the first column, you would add together numbers representing the profit or convenience, uh, the advantage or benefit or happiness produced by doing the action. In the other column, you tally up the loss, the inconvenience, the disadvantage, the mischief or unhappiness, which would derive from doing that action, and then you bottom line the the decision. So if, if the profit column has a higher number than the loss column, a higher sum, then you do the action, and if the loss column has a higher number, then you don't do the action, which seems to give a very scientific and objective way of quantifying behavior so that you can make decisions based on what seem to be very objective data. Of course, the difficulty comes in trying to determine what number would be appropriate for happiness or or for mischief, for that matter. Uh, and that you're dealing with issues which are not quantifiable, but you're acting as if they are. And so you're assigning a number, and to some extent making up a number, and that opens it to a much more subjective decision-making process than would seem to be the case from the the idea of a calculus. Now, utilitarianism did have some useful benefits to society. Its chief question, what is the use of it, was directed at um, a number of traditions, a number of um, old government policies and laws, a number of old social distinctions and and processes as a way of trying to weed out the years of accretion of custom and trying to get to the heart of why are we doing what we're doing. And so it produced a number of beneficial results in in streamlining society and making society more efficient. The liability of utilitarianism is that when its processes are applied to things for which it's not really appropriate. And once you think that it can solve every problem Uh, then it becomes to be more of a menace, perhaps, as some would see, uh, than as a benefit to society. Uh, But, for example, when John Stuart Mill talks about uh, freedom of speech and freedom of thought in On Liberty, um, note the grounds on which he argues that people should be allowed to say what they think. On page 515 in On Liberty, Mill writes, If all mankind, minus one, were of one opinion, and only one person were of the contrary opinion, Mankind would be no more justified in silencing that one person than he, if he had the power, would be justified in silencing mankind. So you have a very strong statement for liberty and freedom of speech. Uh, But then he he qualifies it. His grounds for it are The peculiar evil of silencing the expression of an opinion is that it is robbing the human race, posterity as well as the existing generation, those who dissent from the opinion still more than those who hold it. If the opinion is right, they are deprived of the opportunity of exchanging error for truth. If wrong, they lose what is almost as great a benefit, the clearer perception and livelier impression of truth produced by its collision with error. Mill argues that the great strength of human nature is that it is correctable, that it can learn from its mistakes. But it can only learn from its errors if its errors are recognized and pointed out to it, and if it is convinced that indeed they are errors. Um, He argues that society has tended to develop and advance, but only because people were allowed to point out the errors of previous ways of doing things. And he argues that England, even at the pinnacle of world civilization, as it saw itself, was becoming in in danger of, of shutting down any kind of dissent, any kind of diversity of opinion, becoming too conforming a society. And he saw that as dangerous, not to the rights of individuals, but to the benefit of society as a whole. He extends his call for liberty from freedom of speech and thought to freedom of behavior on page 518, where he writes of the danger that society, uh, his English Victorian society, faced at that time, saying, "...in our times, from the highest class of society down to the lowest, everyone lives as under the eye of a hostile and dreaded censorship." Not only in what concerns others, but in what concerns only themselves, the individual or the families, do not ask themselves, What do I prefer? or What would suit my character and disposition? or What would allow the best and highest in me to have fair play and enable it to thrive and grow? They ask themselves, What is suitable to my position? What is usually done by persons of my station and pecuniary circumstances? or, worse still, What is usually done by persons of a station and circumstances superior to mine? I do not mean that they choose what is customary in preference to what suits their own inclination. It does not occur to them to have any inclination, except for what is customary. Thus the mind itself is bowed to the yoke, even in what people do for pleasure. Conformity is the first thing thought of. They like in crowds, they exercise choice only among things commonly done. Peculiarity of taste, eccentricity of conduct are shunned equally with crimes until by dint of not following their own nature, they have no nature to follow. Their human capacities are withered and starved, they become incapable of any strong wishes or native pleasures, and are generally without either opinions or feelings of home growth, or properly their own. Now is this or is it not the desirable condition of human nature? Mill asserts that it is not a desirable condition at all, and instead he calls for the cultivation of individuality, the, uh, the need for eccentricity in society, for people to try new ways of living uh, on the possibility that they'll find a better way of living and that 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 will then spread to others who will conform, who will follow, uh, and who will learn and and adapt to that better better end. If England does not adapt, he holds up the example of China as uh, a culture which was immensely sophisticated and advanced several centuries ago and became frozen in that culture, and he sees the same possibility open for Victorian England. Mill continued his championing of individual freedoms in 1869 with the publication of On the Subjection of Women, which argued for equal treatment of and equal opportunities for women. Um, It was by far the most unpopular work he had ever written. It provoked howls of protest from, from readers, and it was influenced by his love for and his conversations with Mrs. Harriet Taylor, an intensely intellectual wife of a London merchant whom he met in 1830, and with whom he carried on uh, an apparently platonic love affair for years. In 1849, her husband died and in 1851, uh, Mill and and Mrs. Taylor married uh, and lived together for nine years uh, until she died in 1860. But he credited her with a keener mind than his own and with uh, uh, being the influence uh, for seeing women's issues in the same way that he had seen the individual issues in On Liberty. He sets out his thesis for the uh, the essay, The Subjection of Women, on page 521, that the principle which regulates the existing social relations between the two sexes, the legal subordination of one sex to the other, is wrong in itself, and now one of the chief hindrances to human improvement, and that it ought to be replaced by a principle of perfect equality, admitting to no power or privilege on the one side, nor disability on the other. In his argument, Mill makes a number of interesting analogies, uh, particularly connecting the status of women in society to slavery, um, which was he was not the first to make this connection. Uh, Mary Wollstonecraft had made it in the 1790s in her writing on the the rights of woman, but by the Victorian period, Wollstonecraft had been demonized in part because of her personal life, and um, no woman who was calling for refer- for reforms of, of the role of women, could really uh, list her as, a, as an authority, as a credible figure. Uh, and so for Mill to resurrect some of her arguments and put it in his own words, although it did not make them popular, it did make them um, at least possible to get across to a public. Like Wollstonecraft, he makes a number of arguments about the status quo, particularly distinguishing between what is natural and what is customary. Uh, and he argues that what is natural is impossible to determine, uh, although what the way things are seem to be natural because that's what people are used to, and that's what's customary. He states on page 522, The subjection of women to men being a universal custom, any departure from it quite naturally appears unnatural. But how entirely, even in this case, the feeling is dependent on customs appears by ample experience. One technique I'd like you to notice about Mill's argument is his masterful use of opposition and refutation. Um, Opposition refutation normally is a rhetorical strategy where you state the opposing point of view. Uh, The idea is to state it as fairly as possible so that the opponents of your thesis will uh, recognize how their ideas are represented, and then to refute them. Um, On page 523, for example, a a very um, effective example of this occurs. But it will be said... The rule of men over women differs from all these others in not being a rule of force. It is accepted voluntarily. Women make no complaint and are consenting parties to it. That's the opposing point of view, that women uh, enjoy their position in society. Um, And and you do find examples of this perspective uh, in Queen Victoria's letters. Uh, You find it in um, Sarah Stickney Ellis's conduct manuals, but you also find an opposing view. And... Uh, Mill argues, in the first place, a great number of women do not accept it. Ever since there have been women able to make their sentiments known by their writings, the only mode of publicity which which society permits them, an increasing number of them have recorded protests against their present social condition, and recently many thousands of them, headed by the most eminent women known to the public, have petitioned Parliament for their admission to the parliamentary suffrage, in other words, the right to vote, uh, which women in England would not get until 1919. The claim of women to be educated as solidly and in the same branches of knowledge as men is urged with growing intensity and with a great prospect of success, while the demand for their admission into professions and occupations hitherto closed against them becomes every year more urgent. Though there are not in this country, as there are in the United States, periodical conventions and organized party to agitate for the rights of women, there is, numerous and active society, there is a numerous and active society organized and managed by women For the more limited object of obtaining the political franchise." Mill comes out in favor of these opportunities for women and sees the uh, the lack of opportunities, the lack of equality, the unequal treatment under law, as a strange relic of the Middle Ages, um, one of the few remaining in in civilized and sophisticated England. Um, He writes on 524, for what is the peculiar character of the modern world The difference which chiefly distinguishes modern institutions, modern social ideas, modern life itself, from those of times long past. It is that human beings are no longer born to their place in life, and chained down by an inexorable bond to the place they are born to, but are free to employ their faculties, and such favorable chances as offer, to achieve the lot which may appear to them most desirable. The social subordination of women thus stands out as an isolated fact in modern social institutions, a solid a solitary breach of what has become their fundamental law. A single relic of an old world of thought and practice exploded in everything else, but retained in the one thing of most universal interest. Note, he's not calling for equality for women because women want it or because it is their natural right to have it. He calls for it because it is uh, out of step with the general trend towards progress and equality um, and that it is a, a... it will hold back society as a whole if you keep talented and um, enthusiastic women out of these professions, out of these opportunities. If you require them only to to behave in the way that they have traditionally been allowed to behave, only receive the education they have traditionally been allowed to receive. On page 527, there is a, a document that he writes uh, and that he filed upon his uh, or, or prior to his marriage uh, to Mrs. Harriet Taylor. Uh, in which he renounces all the inequities of the law, all the advantages that the law would give him over his wife, Uh, he states, Being about, if I am so happy as to obtain her consent, to enter into the marriage relation with the only woman I have ever known with whom I would have entered into that state, and the whole character of the marriage relation as constituted by law being such as both she and I entirely and conscientiously disapprove, for this among other reasons, that it confers upon one of the parties to the contract legal power and control over the person, property, and freedom of action of the other party, independent of her own wishes and will. I, having no means of legally divesting myself of these odious powers, as I most assuredly would if an engagement to that effect could be made legally binding on me, feel it my duty to put on record a formal protest against the existing law of marriage, in so far as conferring such powers and a solemn promise, never in any case or under any circumstances to use them. He is correct that this was not a legally binding statement or document, but we can see from this that he intends to practice what he preaches in terms of equality, in terms of liberty, and this this passion with which he held these beliefs. Now, to see what Mill was complaining about, to see what he was adamantly opposing, it's helpful to read Caroline Norton's A Letter to the Queen on page 565, which is very informative in terms of the inequalities instituted in society, and particularly into marriage. A married woman in England, she writes, has no legal existence. Her being is absorbed in that of her husband. She has no possessions. An English wife cannot make a will. An English wife cannot legally claim her own earnings. An English wife may not leave her husband's house without his consent, and if she does leave, even if he's abusive, she can be made to go back. If her husband takes proceedings for a divorce, she is not in the first instance allowed to defend herself, um, if an English wife be guilty of infidelity, her husband can divorce her so as to marry again, but she cannot divorce the husband, however profligate he may be. No law court can divorce in England; A special act of parliament was required to do so uh, a woman a wife cannot prosecute for a libel, she cannot sign a lease, a transact responsible business, she cannot claim uh, spousal support or child support from her husband. She uh, she goes on to say, as her husband, he has a right to all that is hers. As his wife, she has no right to anything that is his. The marriage ceremony is a civil bond for him and an indissoluble sacrament for her, and the rights of mutual property which the ceremony is ignorantly supposed to confer are made absolute for him and null for her. Uh, She also points out that there are different laws for the rich and poor and that the rich could afford to, to get an act of parliament through to allow divorce, whereas the poor, of course, could not and she argues that uh, the marriage laws are inconsistent even within the British Isles, so that in in Scotland, a wife's status was much superior to that she would receive in England. Um, And Norton calls for reform of these laws. Now, you should be aware that not all women were dissatisfied in their position or called for a sweeping reform or change in the status quo. One spokeswoman for this opinion is Sarah Stickney Ellis, who wrote The Women of England, Their Social Duties and Domestic Habits, and we have excerpts from that beginning on page 557 in your book. Ellis, in effect, defends the doctrine of of separate spheres, that men had the public sphere to themselves, and women had the domestic sphere to themselves, and that those two different areas for their interests and efforts were appropriate and productive, and she doesn't want any uh, merging of those two spheres. She writes on 557, How often has man returned to his home with a mind confused by the many voices which in the mart, the exchange, or the public assembly have addressed themselves to his inborn selfishness or his worldly pride, and while his integrity was shaken and his resolution gave way beneath the pressure of apparent necessity or the insidious pretenses of expediency, he has stood corrected before the clear eye of woman, as it looked directly to the naked truth and detected the lurking evil of the specious act he was about to commit. Nay, so potent may have become this secret influence, that he may have borne it about with him like a kind of second conscience, for mental reference and spiritual counsel in moments of trial. And when the snares of the world were around him, and temptations from within and without have bribed over the witness in his own bosom, he has thought of the humble monitress who sat alone, guarding the fireside comforts of his distant home, and the remembrance of her character, clothed in moral beauty has scattered the clouds before his mental vision, and sent him back to that beloved home a wiser and a better man. This conception of the woman's role as the man's second conscience, as the angel in the house, to use a a phrase used by Coventry Patmore in a later series of poems, who makes her husband a better person by her own um, removal from the taints of the world, by her pedestal on which she stands, Uh, and the hearth by which she sits. And this image of the the role of the woman to improve the man indirectly, to stand behind him, to be the guiding force through the sheer goodness of her nature, um, which does not become contaminated with the outside world and with uh, politics or or business. She continues on 558 um, to explain the greater role that women have uh, than they could get in any other way. The women of England, possessing the grand privilege of being better instructed than those of any other country in the minutia of domestic comfort, have obtained a degree of importance in society far beyond what their unobtrusive virtues would appear to claim. The long-established customs of their country have placed in their hands the high and holy duty of cherishing and protecting the minor morals of life, from whence spirit springs all that is elevated in purpose and glorious in action, the sphere of their direct personal influence is central and, con- uh, and consequently small, but its extreme operations are as widely extended as the ranges of human feeling. She goes on to say, But as far as the noble daring of Britain has sent forth her adventurous sons, and that is to every point of danger on the habitable globe, they have borne along with them a generosity, a disinterestedness, and a moral courage derived in no small measure from the female influence of their native country. She contrasts this influence with what might occur from providing women the same type of education that gentlemen have. In order to ascertain what kind of education is most effective in making woman what she ought to be, the best method is to inquire into the character, station, and peculiar duties of woman throughout the largest portion of her earthly career, and then ask, for what is she most valued, admired, and beloved? In answer to this, I have a little hesitation in saying, for her disinterested kindness, Look to all, look at all the heroines, whether of romance or of reality, at all the female characters that are held up to universal admiration, at all who have gone down to honored graves amongst the tears and the lamentations of their survivors. Have these been the learned, the accomplished women, the women who could speak many languages, who could solve problems and elucidate systems of philosophy? No. Let us single out from any particular seminary a child who has been there from the years of ten to fifteen, and reckon, if it can be reckoned, the pains that have been spent in making that child proficient in Latin. Have the same pains been spent in making her disinterestedly kind? And yet what man is there in an existence who would not rather his wife should be free from selfishness than be able to read Virgil without the use of a dictionary? Leaving aside for the moment the question of this dichotomy, whether it's possible to do both, to be able to read Latin and to be uh, unselfish. Um, note the rhetoric she uses, note the emotional buttons that she pushes, and note that this uh, this theme goes back in some ways to the poetry of Felicia Hemans with this same struggle between fame and the domestic hearth, between happiness at home and prominence abroad. And Hemans definitely came down, at least in her poetry, on the side of domestic bliss as being more significant, as being more worthy of praise. One interesting point of comparison might be to talk about this view of education that you receive from Ellis and to contrast that with the view of education that uh, Rora Lee presents. Um, the question is, was all of that emphasis on accomplishments, on, on needlework and piano playing and, and watercolors, uh, on, on reading modern languages just enough to be able to do conversation, was all of that produced to make her Disinterestedly kind. Uh, did it work? Would it have produced that effect, or was it perhaps intended to make her more marriageable, to make her more acceptable within the conforming system that that Mill worried about in England? Isabella Beaton, in her book of household management, which begins on page 574, raises an important point: uh, that is, Aurora Lee's education was intended to make her more attractive to a potential suitor. Uh, to be a lady in terms of her accomplishments, in terms of her, her level of uh, finishing, of sophistication. It did not by any means prepare her for her duties as a as a wife in terms of running a household, in terms of hiring servants or supervising them, in terms of maintaining proper correspondence for, for her husband's business, in terms of managing the, the books of the household and the, the, the domestic economy. Uh, and so Isabella Beaton tries to enter that need by telling um, a housewife what she needs to do, how she needs to, to run her household. Uh, she compares it to being the commander of an army uh, in terms of, of needing the proper degree of discipline, the proper degree of, of leadership and supervisory skills. Another interesting point she raises on 575 is advice for what women should talk about when their friends come over to visit, since visiting is a large degree of a, on the day-to-day basis of what, what these ladies would do and she writes In conversations trifling occurrences such as small disappointments petty annoyances and other everyday incidents should never be mentioned to your friends the extreme injudiciousness of repeating these will be at once apparent when we reflect on the unsatisfactory discussions which they too frequently occasion and on the load of advice which they are the cause of being tendered and which is too often of a kind neither to be useful nor agreeable If the mistress be a wife never let an account of her husband's failings pass her lips and Although Mrs. Beaton gives often very good advice on a number of issues, um, one might pause to think about this and whether we still think this is good advice, whether we would still accept this, and and this sense of, of oppressiveness, uh, this um, superlative nature of her advice. Never let an account of your husband's failings pass your lips in front of your friends or in front of anybody. I hope you will explore some of these issues in your blog entries. There is certainly plenty to discuss in terms of the the gender roles and the gender questioning that was going on at this time. Um, but it's not uh, just a, a discussion of the role of women, but also the role of men, and more specifically as the title of this section suggests, not just women and men, but ladies and gentlemen. Uh, there's a class distinction as well as a gender distinction being arranged here, uh, and certainly the construction of the gentleman was every bit as artificial and as, as rigidly enforced, as well as often unquestioningly um, assumed as the role of ladies. It's certainly not the case that the textile workers or, or coal miners uh, who were women had the same problems that these ladies do in, in terms of how to fill their day, in terms of uh, what education they're receiving, since they received no education and since they were either at, at work doing hard physical labor or they were asleep and there was very little um, else left in their life for them. It's the the ladies who had sufficient leisure time and sufficient um, wealth to to be able to uh, be educated enough to express their dissatisfaction and, and to debate these issues uh, that began this discussion. Um, certainly Queen Victoria, as the foremost lady in, in England and, and in the world, in terms of her public power, uh, has a number of fascinating views on on these issues. She clearly comes across an opposition to um, equal education for women, uh, particularly doesn't want medical schools to allow women to to be trained to be doctors. But the main reason she gives for that is because they would be exposed to uh, language and topics that could not be broached in mixed audiences. Um, So a very fascinating take on, on why women should not receive this type of equality. Um, I look forward to hearing what you have to say, and I hope this will be part of our discussions for our class chat session on Thursday. Until then, thank you and goodbye.